the what we think of as the organic farming movement versus industrial agriculture is exactly in the same relationship as Chinese medicine to Western industrial biomedicine. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. A good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Whatever it is that sets a character off on their journey is pretty much bound to do one thing for sure. That's put them irreversibly into a situation that they didn't expect and they didn't want. A situation where dramatic change is called for, or perhaps a complete loss of everything that brought them to this pivotal moment of transformation. Maybe you've had similar experiences. Something set you off on the path you're now following, some kind of spark, inspiration, or a snippet of overheard conversation that made complete sense in the moment, but now you're at the end of the beginning. In this place, it's not so much fun. It often feels like failure. And it usually comes with a deflating sense of disillusionment. And it makes you wonder if perhaps you met your destiny on the road that you took to avoid it. You probably have had patients ask you, what got you into acupuncture? Who doesn't love to hear a story about a life-changing moment? But it's not the inciting incidents that got you to where you are today. There's only so much power in the energy of starting. It runs out. And when it does... Something else has to fuel the moments of re-choosing what it is that you set out to do. Reflect on the way your life looked at the beginning of acupuncture school, in the shape of it at the end when you neared graduation. Consider how your practice looked at the beginning, and then three years down the road, or if you've been at it for a while, 10 years from that time when you received the first keys to your office. I know for myself, it's easier to focus on what I'm trying to get or create and much more difficult to connect with that which I'm taking apart or losing. Sometimes it's more important to stop doing something that's no longer helpful rather than to try to add in something new. Problem with the solution to today's problems is that over time, they tend to generate tomorrow's new set of problems. Having a practice will teach you about all your deficiencies and mistaken beliefs. I don't think anyone told me about this at the beginning of acupuncture school. Or maybe they did, but I certainly wouldn't have had the ears to hear it. What gets us started is not what helps us to finish. There's something that we learn about grit and perseverance in the middle when we're not sure if things are falling apart or falling together. Yeah, people like to ask, how did you get started? But I'm starting to become more interested and that thing that keeps you going. I appreciate that y'all tune in here to Geological and that it's in the rotation of podcasts that you enjoy, but sometimes it's good to mix things up a bit. So I'd like to share a couple of podcasts that I've been enjoying lately. The first one is the China History Podcast with Laszlo Montgomery. He's a great narrator. He covers the usual big moments in Chinese history, but he also gets into aspects of culture, philosophy, and important moments that you probably never heard about. He also shares stories of Westerners who've lived the majority of their lives over in the Middle Kingdom. As you can well imagine, there's some real characters there. You love Chinese medicine, you're probably going to dig the China History Podcast. I highly recommend it. The other one is Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. It's in season three now. I'd listened to it previously, but I've been listening to the new ones lately. It's a look at events or situations that we think we understand, but in fact, we don't. Kind of reminds me of a day in clinic. I'm finding this podcast helps to limber up my mind a bit. 
it's helpful for the kind of work that we do. In a moment, we'll be getting into a conversation with Jean Glablet. We'll be talking about cultivating Chinese herbs here in the West, but this is not just a conversation about growing herbs, as Jean brings a systemic and soil-centric perspective to this endeavor. When we started this conversation, I thought it was just about, air quotes here, growing herbs. I was wrong. All right, friends, we're going to dig into this conversation on soil systems, herbs, and economics. I think you're going to enjoy it. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, 
You don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Hey friends, welcome back to Geological. I've got Gene Gablet with me today. Gene is involved with the High Falls Garden Project. If you're not familiar with it, you're going to be after we have this conversation. It's all about Chinese herbs. So you herbalists out there, you agriculturalists out there, you echo farmer type people. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Gene, welcome to Geological. Thank you, Michael. Always a delight. We have only had a chance to talk from time to time and we were at the uh, Shenong conference uh, recently together and, and had an enjoyable conversation. So I'm super happy to be able to sit down with you here on Geological and continue that. Me too. So I am always curious about how people got started with whatever it is that they're doing. And growing Chinese herbs in the United States, what happened? How did. <laughs> uh, I'm crazy. I have no other way of explaining it. I uh, moved to my present location in 1990, an old Victorian house with my partner. It has two and a half acres of land, mostly wooded. I totally got into perennial plants immediately. I just jumped in. I was fascinated with it. And that included culinary and medicinal herbs. And I read a few books on Western herbalism And they just seemed too anecdotal. There didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason tying together the so-called properties of these herbs. I couldn't see any beef. You know, where's the beef kind of thing? (laughs) You just dated yourself. (laughs) Horrible. (laughs) That ad was from like the late 60s, early 70s, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Honey, I go way back. This was a sort of a midlife kind of epiphany that I'm talking about here. And I just happened to be in New York Chinatown for a tour of the markets. And we walked into Lynn Sisters Herb Pharmacy. And that was the first time I'd ever been exposed to Chinese medicine. I took a, a one look at those little drawers and realized that they were putting together custom formulas. And it it was like I had an epiphany. Oh, there's someone in the world who remembers how to do herbal medicine. It just came to me in a flash. And I dropped out of the tour and I got myself a tongue and pulse diagnosis because I'd had a chest congestion for three weeks Um, This was 93. I was working in Manhattan in an office with smokers. Back in those days, you could smoke in the office. Yeah. Yep. And no ventilation in those towers. So I had had this chest congestion for weeks. 
And I think what they gave me was a little yin chow type thing. And I took it home, the three little bags, and boiled it. 36 hours later, my chest was clear. And I I just said, oh, my God. So What was that? I went back to Lynn's sister and, and talked to Frank. And I said, where do I study this? And he whipped out a little threefold flyer for Jeffrey Ewan, who was teaching at Swedish Institute. So I went to Jeffrey and I said, I don't really want to be a clinician. I want to study the plants. Can I study with you? And he said, sure. So I took a a certificate, a one-year certificate from him then, and I took another one in uh, 03, 04. And in between those two times, I studied in a lot of his classes. Also, I tried to get my hands on the plant material, which was very, very difficult at the beginning. Then out on the West Coast, Robert Newman, I got attached to him through the Chinese herb garden at UC Berkeley. And he uh, is really the Johnny Appleseed of Chinese medicinal plants in North America. Robert so, Newman. Robert Newman. He is now... First time I've, I've heard of him. He's clinical director at Emperor's College now. He doesn't really do the kind of plant work he used to do when he, he started. And he's a total plant geek. He's, he's marvelous. He was a student at ACTCM, and he was unhappy that he would have to go all the way across the bay to Berkeley to see those plants in the garden. So he started collecting seed through international botanical garden networks. Now, those are the really super geeky people. Yes. It's almost almost like an underground network, right? It was. And this was before the Chiang Mai Declaration, which was about intellectual property and so forth regarding plants. Chiang, women, Chiang Mai Declaration. This could be the UN. I can't remember right now, but there was a meeting in Chiang Mai that determined that countries had a right to their plant material, and they shouldn't be just swapping it back and forth. Well, it's never really been enforced, but it was like a recognition of intellectual rights to the plants of a people or nation. In any case, those type of exchanges are still occurring. And uh, Robert collected something like six or 700 species of Asian medicinal plants, in, mostly in seed form, but they, there were pots lining the halls of ACTCM, <laughs> pots of plants. And that school has been, had an active garden program ever since the early 90s. So they're one of the, the good schools for uh, student gardens, which we got into later. Anyway, in about 96 or 97, Robert went back to China. He was hired as a caretaker or gardener at the medicinal plant garden of the Nanjing Institute of Botany. And we we all thought, oh, my God, what an honor. They would hire a Westerner for this job. Well, it had been neglected for years and was in the hands of a landscape 
department. And he spent about a year and a half trying to do inventory before he gave up and came home. But anyway, he had a lot of good contacts in China. So we did acquire a lot of plant material. And he dispersed it to about six or eight people around the country, including Joe Hollis in North Carolina, Peg Schaefer in California, me in New York, um, Vinnie McKinney in Missouri, a couple other people who have Vinnie McKinney out. in Missouri. Is he still doing this? I don't think so. I haven't heard from her in a long time. So there is still a, an organization called One Garden. I, I think she is probably retired. I'm not sure about that. Also, Conrad Richter of Richter's Herbs in Toronto was involved, uh, Rich Ochek in Oregon. So there, there were a few of us who started growing out this plant material and, and conserving it. So I refer to these people as the uh, Newman Conservators. And this is how the thing has been perpetuated now for three decades. And it has borne a lot of fruit in terms of education for graduate students of East Asian medicine. There have been sales, but the thing I'm working on now is the possibility of domestic production. And when you make a little student garden or a research garden, that's not production. Production requires gearing up to a larger volume of product, and it has its own challenges. I mean, I can't even imagine those two things being the same other than you're working with some plant material. I mean, the, the thought for me of, of a, let's call it a hobby garden at a school versus production for people that are using the medicine, I mean, th those are scales of magnitude I mean, the thought process of doing a small garden, you, you couldn't use that in the bigger no. scheme. No. So I have maintained that the uh, profession has to cooperate with real farmers. Tell me more about what that means. There are a lot of people who want to grow the plants for their own study and edification and maybe their own home use if they know how to use these things, although it would be pretty impossible for one person to produce everything that goes into a formula. No kidding. I mean, just oh. think about some of the <laughs> <Yeah>. different <laughs> biosystems that oh, yeah. some of these substances come from. It would be, right. I mean, I can't imagine doing it in my backyard in Missouri, that's for sure. Right. So I've run into a lot of people who assume that if they can do a garden, that they can become a producer. I don't want to totally squash them, but I have to kind of point out that being a real farmer is quite a different thing. You have to have a sizable chunk of land. You have to have facilities and equipment. But most important, you have to have experience. So what I'm doing in New York now, and I've been coordinating the New York Farmer Group since 2016, I screen people and make sure that they're prepared for accepting a delivery of several flats of starts. So this is like 
a greenhouse flat with 72 little plugs in it, all of one plant. And I can just hand those flats to them and go away because they know what to do after that. And I don't have to supervise them. We've already agreed about where on their farm they're going to plant it. And if they need some kind of special setup, uh, we've already agreed on that. So that's the difference in working with a real farmer. You don't have to give them a course in horticulture. Now, that said, I think it's also advantageous for East Asian medicine professionals to be exposed to horticulture and conservation, ecology, agriculture, so that they know what goes into it. I mean, when we think about our medicine as practitioners, we often think of ourselves as cultivating an ecosystem, the ecosystem of the body. You know, and we often like to think about ourselves as, you know, really being involved in the web of life and, and somehow being able to nourish it and, and use those connections to help people heal. And yet when I think about the mess that my garden can become so easily in my backyard, thinking about the poetic aspects of growing things and actually growing them is, those are two very, very different things. It's that our whole society has become uh, divorced from nature. It's only two million farms left, two million family farms. So the percentage of people in our society who are still connected, it's very small. And that our memories of maybe our grandparents having been on a farm, we've lost that connection. And it's it's a profound loss. I ran, um, they called it a herb boot camp. Uh, it was a one-week immersion training program in late August uh, for the East Asian medicine graduate students. And it was, they stayed on a farm, not my farm, but a local farm, and spent a week getting their hands in the dirt and listening to people talk and so forth. Well, one of these years, uh, I ran it from 05 to 2011, and uh, that was it. That was, that was a phase. But one of those years, I was taking a couple of people to the train station at the end. And this young man said to me, you've changed my life. And I said, what? Uh, what do you mean? He said, my grandparents were North Carolina sharecroppers. And I have always believed that anything to do with farming was way below me and too simple and humble for me to get involved in. And he said, I listened to those people you had talking and realized that it's far more sophisticated and challenging and wonderful than I can ever possibly imagine. It was an incredible testimony. And he went he went home to New Jersey or wherever and, and got his kids enrolled in a nature studies program and started thinking about planting trees. So this connection uh, to the earth and to what's going on with farming is really profound. Not everyone is influenced in that way, but when it happens, it was 
it, it showed to me that it was kind of like a conversion experience, a religious conversion experience. It, it sounds in some ways that it echoes the experience that you had. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're walking through Chinatown on a tour, uh-huh. and the herbs catch your attention in such a profound way that you drop out of the tour, and you get yourself an herbal formula, and now your life has completely changed. Not just because your lungs cleared up, but because this whole other path opened up that you had not seen before. What had you been doing prior to the discovery of these herbs? But you know, before this tour through Chinatown, you were working in a smoky big building. I'm curious, what were you doing prior to this? I hadn't decided what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I was 42 years old. Well, you know, Kurt Vonnegut said that the most interesting people he'd ever met didn't know what they wanted to do at the age of 50. <laughs> so you're so you're an early bloomer. I was spared that. Now, I grew up in central Minnesota and in a farming community, although we didn't live on a farm. Then I went to high school in Fargo, North Dakota. No. My big high school, really high quality public education. But my high school job was working as a research assistant for agronomy uh, graduate students at North Dakota State University. And we would go out into the fields and pollinate sunflowers and do weed studies and thresh seeds and mini threshing machines and, you know, all this stuff, laboratory. And I was still doing that. This is so (laughs) curious and interesting to me. There's something that deeply in your background Maybe you wander away from it, but uh-huh. but it's never that far away. Yeah. yeah. When I left home to go to college, I never once dreamed that I would be back in agriculture. I was like Eric, my student. I just never thought that was something I would be involved with. And it was shocking <laughs> to find myself back in it. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. My story is a little bit different. I didn't have any background in medicine. In fact, I wanted nothing to do with medicine as I was growing up. And I never wanted anything to do with medicine until Chinese medicine helped me out. And I got curious about it. 
and, and then this other world opens up. So it's, it, it's often surprising the turns that our lives will take at certain moments that lead right. us down a path completely unimaginable. Well, I find it marvelous that when you wander around until you're 42 years old, you pick up a lot of experiences that prove useful, ultimately. And I did consider going to graduate school in some kind of health science. I uh, majored in psychology in, in college, and my mentor there wanted me to go to clinical psychology graduate school. And that's when I decided I, I didn't want to be a clinician. You know, I thought, I'm 22 years old. What, the, what do I know? I can't, I can't help people. Right. I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up working uh, in a research program in community mental health. and. I attempted to, uh, for a year, I took some pre-med courses and thought, oh, maybe I want to go to medical school. I I really didn't like that experience. I dropped out. Then I tried maybe a public health master's degree. I didn't like that experience either. And (laughs) I was told after being rejected by a program I wanted to get into, I, I was told, Gene, um, uh, your record shows that you're interested in doing what you want to do. And our graduates go to work at the assistant commissioner level, and they have to crank out papers on any subject, whether they're interested in it or not. Oh, and you would have been a bad fit for that. I, they nailed me as non-compliant. That's why they rejected me. And I, I was too young to say, thank you very much for saving me a whole lot of pain, money, etc." I said, oh, <laughs> oh, oh. But isn't that interesting? And it was always in the back of my mind, the concern for health. When we moved to this rural county in 1990, I was totally shocked to go to the supermarket and find grossly obese people lined up to buy junk food with food stamps. There were 500 farms in this county. Oh, man, that just makes you go, what's going on here? Many of them defunct. And this was now after um, how many decades as an urbanite? I go back to rural America and it's it's fallen apart it's that the health of the people is totally deteriorated we we didn't have fat people <laughs> when i was in the 1950s i i mean not like what we, what we have today we didn't have junk food junk food was just coming in we didn't have hamburger chains well we did have dairy queen i i suppose Dairy Queen. That was a shocking experience that I think laid the groundwork for my discovery of Chinese herbal medicine, because there was the concern that something was terribly wrong. And then when I realized that the Chinese had it figured out, I was hooked. And I have been totally hooked ever since. Yeah. Wow. I love the winding path story, but 
that, that just might be because my path has been a winding path too. And, you know, for so many years, I thought I was like really broken because I didn't have that straight path from like, you know, good grades in school to the right college to the secure job, blah, 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 which, you know, so often sold as the American dream. And yet how many people have inhabited that? I mean, how many, I've met so many people that call themselves recovering or ex-lawyers because they, they went down that path and they got into it and they went, oh my God, this is not at all where I want to be. I've had some experiences similar to yours where I thought I wanted to go somewhere and the people that were sort of the gatekeepers of that recognized, oh, this guy's going to be a lot more trouble than help. He asks too many questions. He's got his own ideas. And so some of us end up on these really wandering, winding paths because we don't fit in so well somewhere. And yet it gives us an opportunity to find place a niche you know like a plant yeah where we really can put down some roots and we can really thrive and grow and you know bring some local benefit well it's important on on many different levels but also uh, my background and both my parents is really agrarian and I'm very conscious of the difference between uh, agrarian values and industrial values. Ooh, okay. And I want to I want to get into that. Okay. I want to I want to I want to unpack that some more because uh-huh. it, it also I suspect it might come around to this other question lingering in the back of my mind. Something that you brought up a few minutes ago about needing the support of the profession or somehow having the profession supporting the mm-hmm. farmers. I, I I can't remember exactly how you said it, but that you know, for Chinese herbs in the United States to flourish, there needs to be some support from the profession. So I I got a feeling that agrarian versus industrial might have something to do with this. So tell us more about that. The, what we think of as the organic farming movement versus industrial agriculture is exactly in the same relationship as Chinese medicine to Western industrial biomedicine with its pharmaceutical bias. And now the pharmaceutical and agrochemical companies are the same, that Bayer acquired Monsanto. I live five miles from that ground zero. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) So in the 1970s, when uh, there was this huge consciousness raising from Earth Day, and I I remember that, April 22nd, 1970, a lot of people saw how industrial agriculture, industrial medicine were damaging us. But the movement went underground because the established uh, institutions were very strong. And I'll speak to the organic farming movement. It was a few people... Uh, going back to the land, even though they had no farming experience. And these are people my age, so they're 70 years old now. They became the senior teachers. And from about 1990 through that decade, the farmer groups like uh, Northeast Organic Farming Association, they were bootstrapping themselves. They were teaching each other the methods of organic farming. The universities would have nothing to do with it. 
the universities were dedicated to industrial agriculture, and that's where they were getting a lot of their money. So everything uh, started to shift in 1998 when the U.S. organic law was passed. And that was not an easy passage. But what happened after that is that the universities started to open up. And now uh, it differs from one university to the next, but more people are cooperating. What got the universities to open up? I mean, it would seem to me they're getting so much of their funding and research and equipment and so much from the industrial complex. Why would they open up to the organic world? The passage of the National Organic Act was facilitated by the fact that these farmers were so successful and they were getting higher prices for their food. And that there was an has, economic benefit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's been at least single digit into double digit growth every year. And it went straight through the 2008 recession. Organics continued to uh, increase every year. So it's a money pot. And now you have corporations like Walmart selling organic food because they're, they're trying to get the money. And we have this level called industrial organic where they don't spray too many chemicals, but it's still a monoculture. And the, the problem with monoculture is not only the spraying of chemicals. It's the fact that uh, it reduces the diversity of the microflora. And the microbial world in the soil is how the plants assimilate food. This is exactly analogous to uh, our gut bacteria. And the microbes that cluster around the villi of our intestinal wall, we don't absorb food directly. We get it from the microbes. And so do plants. Same as how plants get their food. Right. Yeah, no no difference there. That's uh you know, I, this is one of those things I know it from studying some science. I know it cuz I'm 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 a practitioner of Chinese medicine, but sitting down with you and having this conversation, I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really kind of basic when when you completely understand it you do anything to harm that microbial balance in the soil and your plants are going to suffer conversely if you take care of your microbes (laughs) and you put a lot of diversity into the setting and you don't bother them too much you don't do a lot of tillage you do cover cropping to keep them hydrated and protected and everything then they're going to go to town and really do great stuff and your your food is going to be superb so you can you can go to the local farmers market if you if you've got a fairly big farmers market in august you can buy three different pints of cherry tomatoes and you can taste who is taking care of their microbes you can actually taste the differences. It's because of the soil and how they're treating the soil. So, uh, so you're not just about growing Chinese herbs. No. You're about 
soil conservation. You you truly stand in the you know the five phase scheme of things. You stand so firmly in the earth there, don't you? I do, and it's all about the soil. There was a a great prophet of the organic movement, a Brit named Sir Albert Howard, and he said the health of the uh, plants, animals, humans is all the same problem. It all comes from the soil. There is no other source. That's not a direct quote, but he's saying the health of the soil is everything. I, and, I have heard this echoed from other people as well. Yeah. And there's this big movement now, largely in the West, including Australia, restoration agriculture. So we're not even talking about ecological. We're talking about taking worn-out farms, salinated lands, uh, lands that have been abused, that have had Roundup sprayed on them for 10 years, and actually restoring them to health. That, that's the leading edge. That's right now the leading edge in, in uh, ecological agriculture. It's how, do you, how do you do that? Agriculture. It's a system of uh, cover cropping and foregoing tillage. Tillage is no-no. After, after you do the cover cropping, which is kind of a blend of different plants, then you want to try to stuff as much macro diversity into the area as you can. So most people do it with these fantastic pastures where they're, the lands are really rich. And what happens is that the roots go way down. So this is this is happening on the prairie in North Dakota. Uh, there, I mean, there are YouTube videos about this stuff. It's totally fascinating. And by the way, Michael, I'm planning to do a blog. I, I've got too much on my plate right now, but I would like to be able to just point to some of these videos and sources so that people can watch the video and get an idea. I think that's uh, kind of where I'm headed as far as education of the East Asian uh, profession. When we sat down to start this conversation today, and, and by the way, we can put some of these links on, on the show notes page that you were just talking about. I want to see them. But when we were first sitting down here today, I thought we were going to be having this conversation about growing Chinese herbs and how that's going to be good for us and how it's uh -huh. done and you know something about the, the marketing and, and all that of it. And yet, here we are, 30 minutes later, deep into dirt, deep in <laughs> I, I'm something super fundamental. And, and again, it's one of these things where when you start to talk about it in the way that you've been talking about it, it becomes very, very clear. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely, yes. And the kind of cultivation that you're talking about is not so different, I suspect, from the kinds of ways we work with our patients in our clinic. We're really looking to get to something essential. Sometimes it requires rest. Sometimes it requires a kind of, I mean, we say cultivation, right? The cultivation practices. And so often I think about human beings and, and at least the work that I do in, in clinic is you know, working with a garden or working with an ecosystem. But for some reason, I don't know why, from this conversation, all of a sudden I'm thinking about, what if I could just like dial it down to working with my patients as a pasture? Right? When I think ecosystem, 
I mean, that's huge, you know, and, and maybe a little bit, uh, how do I say this? It's like, you know, me think I can understand the ecosystem. How can I do that? I'm just a human being. Ecosystems are big. It's a little egotistic to think I could actually understand an ecosystem. But a pasture, I suspect I might be able to understand a pasture. You're the gardener, not the mechanic. You're not fighting bugs. Bugs are your friends. Bugs are Mother Nature's little housekeepers. And they come in to take out plants that are unhealthy. They're not the enemy. They're not evil. (laughs) So if you have a good balance of nature in your pasture, then it's going to take care of itself. And the the, uh, potential pathogens are not going to be able to uh, attack or affect it negatively. And that's why, you know, most people don't know anything about farming. When they think of organic agriculture, they think, well, how do you, how do you get rid of bugs? How do you cure disease? And the organic farmers say, we don't. We have a balance of nature. The so-called bad bugs are there, but they never get out of control. So it's very rare that they have an outbreak of some some something that's harming their plants. Now, why this is so important right now is that we have industrial agriculture still spraying Roundup all over the place. You know, ninety five percent of the corn and soy grown in the U.S. is uh, GMO, and they're spraying bad carcinogens on the soil and they're getting into the water okay this is really bad it's bad 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 so china's doing the same thing and we've got the industrial level versus the ecological level in both countries so what i'm hoping to do is to help the people Uh, anywhere here and in China um, to strengthen the ecological farming, agriculture, and get with the people who are demonstrating how it's very possible to grow our herbs in ecological settings. And in fact, the Chinese invented ecological agriculture thousands of years ago. And we, the people in my little network, were able to remind them. I went over to China in 2009 to an ecological agriculture conference. I was invited to speak. There was a young woman there. Her name is Shuryan. She had just started the first community-supported agriculture program in China, northwest of Beijing. She sat by me, and she took out of her pocket a little keychain with a map of the gopher state, a plastic map of Minnesota with a gopher on it. And I just about fell over. (laughs) (laughs) This was my first trip to China. She had interned at a CSA farm in Minnesota for a year. And she had picked up the fact that the book, Farmers of 40 Centuries by Dr. King, a USDA scientist, over 100 years ago, went to China 
Korea and Japan to try to figure out how they could have maintained soil fertility over thousands of years? Well, the quick answer, 100% closed loop, small scale recycling on the farms. Everything was recycled. Anyway, he came back, wrote a book, Farmers of 40 Centuries, published in 1908, I believe. It's 1908. Never, never been out of print. Never. Rodale picked it up and then Acres USA. So Sure Yan found this book when she was in Minnesota. In the United she, States. In the United States. She took it back to China. Not only started the first CSA farm, but with her uh, thesis advisor, Dr. Wen, they they published it in Chinese. <laughs> so it's come it's come full circle. And now there are over 500 CSA farms in China. This is incredibly exciting and they just had to remind themselves of their own traditions. And you know when I speak I I can see people, people's faces in the audience and they're going what what Yes, you invented it. You invented both Chinese medicine and Chinese agriculture. And now this is this is what's going to save us. And and we want to learn from you. Well, of course, I'm showing respect for their traditions. So this is why I, I get invited back. And uh, I'll do all I can because they are using industrial methods to grow the herbs right now when they're 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 gathering most of them or a lot of them from the wild as they've done all along but when they most of the time when they cultivate the herbs they're using chemicals so i trust andy ellis and the others to be able to source our herbs and i have no problem with uh taking imported herbs and formulas right now because I think the people who are doing it for us are trustworthy. But we can all see the handwriting on the wall. We've, we've, we've got to shift the balance toward ecological agriculture. Right now, conditions in China are favorable because of uh, how they've declared ecological civilization and how President Xi is behind it. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 
to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. What's one of the interesting things, given their political system over there, they decide to do something, they just go do it. They just go do it. And I I, I remember seeing all kinds of development while I've been living over there, you know, travel from time to time. Entire city blocks would be gone from a neighborhood. Uh And then within a year, you've got these, you know, brand new buildings that are beautiful and tall and more efficient. And, you know, it's like people look at it and go, oh, don't you miss the hutong? It's like, why would I miss the hutong? The hutong had the bathroom down the street. Now I got a bathroom in my own place. Well, they went a little too far uh, and are pulling back right now. For example, um, depopulating the countryside and everybody moving to the city. I remember a New York Times article less than 10 years ago saying, Oh, 250 million Chinese farmers are going to be moved into these towers in the cities. No, sorry, that was propaganda. There was a big counter movement, and it was led by Dr. Wen, a friend of mine in my network, Wen Tiejuan. He's the head of the new rural reconstruction movement and has been advocating with a lot of other people saying, you, you destroy your farms and villages, you're not going to make it. We're not going to make it if we continue on this path. So they got off the path. They reversed it. And in 2016, for the first was the first year when more people moved back to the villages than moved to the cities. They have reversed that trend, and they're in the process of examining what they imported from the West and thinking, uh, do we really want this? Is this really good for us? Is it really helpful? Some years ago, I was on a train from Beijing to uh, Nanjing, I think it was. And oddly enough, there were some, uh, I guess, environmental engineers, environmental designers, city planners that were on that train. They were with a, a contingent of Chinese people. I was in Seattle at the time, so it was fun, you know, kind of fun running into somebody from, you know, where I lived on a train in Nanjing. But it, it turns out, while, of course, there's all kinds of development that has been really problematic, these people were being brought in because they were looking at designing cities that recycled themselves, not just farms and villages. You know, we talk about the pasture. It sounds like, at least on that train ride that I was on, that there's some attention being given to, even on larger scales, with development and cities and all that, 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 that sense of recycling, that sense of something it's created there and it has to somehow decompose there and be recreated is coming into play. In the fall of 2015, we went to a rural development conference in Beijing and they had representatives of villages all over China presenting what they were doing to restore the economic viability of their village. And they had all these different plants. My favorite one was the village where Celadon pottery is made traditionally. They had the gorgeous display. Oh, and they showed pictures of the village. It's somewhere in the West, I forget where, and in the mountains. And they said, 
it's hard to get to, but if you come here, you won't want to leave. And I said, uh, I probably wouldn't. But then last year, one of my friends in Beijing told me that she had vowed to eliminate poverty by 2020. Okay, that's next year. And he said, all of these counties that are declared below the poverty line are to submit a plan that includes as many people in their jurisdiction as possible, a plan for economic development in China. Every county below the poverty line, you, the county submits a plan. The plan is approved by the federal, you know, central committee or well, however they do it. And here's the money. Here's the money. Wow. You know, we could take a lesson here in our country with that, <laughs> couldn't we? Y'all make a plan. Show <laughs> Show us how you intend to do this, and not we're going to come in and save you. Yeah. Think this through yourselves. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Wow. That's impressive. It, it really is. And they can do it because they have um, their money is created by the central bank, the Chinese central bank. They don't have to borrow it from banksters. Like oh boy! Do. Oh boy! That's so. Let's not get into that. Yeah, that's 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 a whole different rabbit hole, and our blood pressure would go up. We're at the age where that's not a good idea. Oh my God! I want to circle back to growers here in the United States, people producing these fantastic substances yeah. in a diverse, sustainable way, and our you know community of practitioners how do we become an ecosystem that is self-supportive this is important i have now been associated with eight different farmer groups all around the country all of which have failed except one the new york one that i'm coordinating now and last year we had a spectacular bankruptcy the uh, blue ridge center for Chinese medicine, had a grower program, and they got caught betwixt and between a couple of public agencies who basically did not play fair, and they went bankrupt. They were encouraged to hire staff and build facilities that, because that's what the agricultural agencies do. They, they are oriented to annual crops, so they want quick results. We can't deliver quick results. We need at least 10 years even to start because most of our plants, and especially the high-value ones, take 5, 10, 15 years to establish. And it's not like putting in a row of carrots and digging them up at the end of the season. It's about uh, creating a self-replicating stand of plants on a farm and building it up. And it takes a while. So this uh, public funding model is not working for us. And uh, straight venture capital uh, is probably impossible. So I went to the herb committee of the Council of Colleges last fall, and I said, this is enough. Enough is enough. You have to help me do a networking campaign to find green investors who really understand 
And we have to form a for-profit organization controlled by the profession with East Asian medicine professionals on the board, at least on the board, because who else is going to monitor quality? We can't rely on anyone else. The profession has to do that. But first of all, the profession has got to do the networking so we can find these people who really understand what we're trying to do and will part with big chunks of money for a few years. They understand they're not going to get a quick return. But the thing is, with perennial polyculture, if you build a self-replicating stand of a plant or an orchard, it takes a while, but eventually you make a lot of money with not too much work. This is potentially making a lot of money. We're not crying poor to these investors. We're saying, yes, it takes a long time, but the upside is huge. And Chinese herbal medicine is being accepted all over the world. There's just no way that China can sustain all of that production forever. Um, it's very logical that it be done in North America because there is a phytogeographical relationship between our plants and East Asian plants. This has been established for hundreds of years by botanists. This is why we have American ginseng and Asian ginseng. If you saw them growing side by side, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. They're very closely related, but... And the Chinese have decided that they have quite different properties. However, a North American farmer, in working with a Chinese medicinal plant, is not making a stretch. It's not, you know, working with something truly exotic. It's something closely related, and we can deduce its requirements from its relatives that we already know. This is very doable. It just takes a few million dollars to get it started and hire people who will coordinate and run the computers to track all the products. And it's not a lot of money where current scales are factored into account. It's a few million dollars. I'm not going to say precisely right now because we haven't finished the business plan. I have LACs helping me, by the way. I'm not stuck out on a limb here, thank God. And we have our first potential investor who is a businessman in Hong Kong. So we're, we're kind of um, in a good position. The networking campaign will probably commence later this year. But I hope that everyone in the profession is going to hear about this. And I don't, I'm not expecting our own professionals to pony up the money, but I am expecting that they know relatives or patients or somebody who is in a position to make a six-figure investment and is a qualified investor. It's just a networking problem. You know, I love hearing it phrased that way, that it's just a networking problem. And I also can't help but notice that this isn't something that's going to happen by itself. This is something no. that takes some initiative. No. It takes some infrastructure, right? Not only, not only land to grow things, but the infrastructure of how, I mean, really it's about creating a communications network. Right. 
It's all about communications. The reason the farmers, the farmer groups have died or dissolved is because there's no one coordinating. There's no one checking in with them every year and saying, how are you doing? What's happening with your crop? Let's see what's going on here. Do you have any questions? And thus giving the assurance that there's going to be a market for their goods a few years down the road. Right, because if, if you put in all this work and no one's going to buy it, right. oh man, then you lose the farm, no and, pun intended. And they can make more money growing heirloom tomatoes. They don't have to fool around with Chinese medicinal plants. Most of them are doing it because they're already using Chinese medicine. They admire it. They're, there's, uh, you know, they're animals. Uh, there's a vet veterinarian out in uh, Niagara County and I went out there to recruit farmers and they were all ready to jump more than ready to jump on board because this veterinarian was using Chinese medicinal herbs on their animals and they'd seen all these miracles (laughs) that was not a hard sell at all but in order to sustain that motivation there has to be a connection with the profession somebody there on the farm representing the, the profession saying, yes, we're holding this thing together. And five years from now, when, when you dig up these roots, we're going to help you sell them. You have carved out for yourself a not small task. <laughs> but it's doable. Prior to having this conversation, I might have thought it wasn't. But since we've had this hour to sit together... Yeah, I agree it's doable. And I also love what you have to say that we need to be involved. We may not have a six-figure amount to contribute. I suspect we all have something we can contribute. And like you said, there's connections, there's people we might know, there are folks that are you know involved in this business or that business, or, or they're just looking to make a difference in the world in a way, and they have the resources to do it. It helps to be able to know how to point people in a direction where they kind of want to go anyway. Right. And the more people we that get involved, the more momentum we have, and the more investors we've got lined up, the easier it will be to get more. Because they see that there's already some people on board. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm thinking about, because I remember that first Earth Day. Yeah. In 1970. I think I was in junior high school. And I remember they took us outside. All I remember of that Earth Day was being like, you know, in junior high, which means you're mostly oblivious to the world. Right. <laughs> Except we had class outside and we started talking about how things were connected. I, I remember that day quite strongly. I mean, in some ways, it, it, it was a pivotal moment. Um, yes. In recognizing, oh, wait, what? What? And so... Here we are now, decades later, still doing that work, right? I mean, really involved in that work, whether it's the medicine that we prescribe people or the ways that we work or, you know, cultivating those plants. But it's more than just cultivating plants and it's more than just doing natural medicine. It's it's really a way of of working with what we have, where we are, you know, in a durable, reusable way. And healing our landscapes. And healing our landscapes. I mean, how much good does it do us to heal someone if they're going to, you know, go back to a life that is destroying their health? Right. 
I suspect you have websites and ways that folks can uh, get in touch and 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 yes. help if they want to help or or at least get on your mailing list so that they know when there's something that uh, might yes. need their attention. How do we get in touch with you? Uh, Highfallsgardens.net. The the website is totally obsolete. I'm working on the revival right now, and I hope to have that ready by the fall when we're going to do this uh, networking campaign. But people giving very small donations, I've got students giving $5 a month. This is incredibly helpful because, you know, we we need to prime the pump. We need to hire lawyers. We need to, you know, do the preliminary work to set this whole thing up. And so we do need a little money right now. And I would appreciate any and all donations. It's going toward supporting this initiative uh, for domestic production here in America. So High Falls Gardens, plural, plural, dot net. Okay, I'll make sure it's on the website as well. You can just go to the show notes page and click on it. I do email easier than anything else, not uh, texting, but email. So just email me at info at highfallsgardens.net. And I'm glad to answer emails. Wonderful. Well, as always, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for taking some time to sit down and, and not just have a conversation with me, but with uh, all the listeners here of the podcast. Yeah. Oh, thanks for doing this, Michael. I really appreciate what you do. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, If you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. (laughs) 